Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman Murphy, and you are listening to our latest Heartwork series called Becoming a Friend of Allah Lessons from the Life of Prophet Ibrahim. If you benefit from and appreciate the work that we do here at Roots, please consider becoming a sustainer at rootsdfw.orgslash sustain. Your contributions go a very long way in supporting the work that we do. And if you're ever in the Dallas area, please give us the honor of being able to host you. We'll have a cup of coffee for you at Suhba, inshallah and we'll be able to welcome you home in person. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alrighty, assalamu alaikum. Bismillah. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa ashabihi. Welcome home everybody. It's good to see you here, alhamdulillah. Okay, so we are finishing um, the passage in Surah As-Safat where Ibrahim is being given, uh, as described by Allah, one of the greatest tests that he had to experience uh, in his life. Um, we've gone through pretty, pretty, alhamdulillah, thoroughly the description of Ibrahim with his people. And the amount of principle and the amount of, uh, you know, the amount of perseverance he had to have with regards to, oh, sorry, this is not showing. There we go. Better? No? Screen mirroring. Roots Apple TV. Is it showing? Which computer is this? There is a computer on this TV. Oh. No? Yeah, there we go. All right. So the principle and the, the consistency that he had to have in his response to his people. And we left off at this moment when he left his people and he said, That I'm going to leave. I'm going to disengage now from you and I'm, I'm going away. And we talked about this as being, you know, a, a difficult choice or a difficult statement to make. Uh, the Prophet, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he had to make hijrah, right, because this is basically a statement of hijrah, when he had to make hijrah, when he migrated from Mecca and he left to go and attain some sense of, you know, peace in Medina, even though Medina was not all peaceful either, right, there were a lot of different... Uh, uh, battles and a lot of different things that the Prophet had to deal with there internally and externally. But when he وسلم, left Mecca, there is a narration that's so beautiful, but it's so emotional, so powerful to read, in that the Prophet وسلم, as he was leaving Mecca, he turned around and he faced the city and he spoke to it. He spoke to his hometown where he spent you know, four decades of his life, four more decades of his life, really five, right? Four as like a conscious thinking person but since he was born over 50 years of his life he spent in this one city and he speaks to Mecca and he says if I were not commanded to leave you I would have never left you and for anyone in this room who's had to move right leaving home is difficult home will always be home it doesn't matter how much you love right the new place that you live does not matter home will always have that soft spot in your heart so Ibrahim he's not only leaving his family his community, his people that he grew up with who rejected him. He's also leaving the place that's most familiar to him. And he's deciding that he has to go. Now, where is he going? He, he actually doesn't mention a place. And we talked about this last week. He doesn't say a specific place. But the tafsir actually mentions that there's four things that he's leaving to. And as, as we listen to these four things, I want us all to think about our own decisions. Because we all have decisions where we have to decide if we're going to stay or if we're going to leave. Right? Some of it is like physical location. Some of it is like more emotional. Right? Like if you decide that this relationship that you're pursuing or this friendship that you have that's not good for you or whatever. Maybe you're at work and the, 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 the corporate culture is, is, is just absolutely deteriorating your soul. You have to decide whether or not you're going to stay or whether you're going to go. So the scholars of tafsir, they write beautifully. They say that Ibrahim was leaving to a few different places. And they don't name any places. They name states. Number one, 
to the pleasure of Allah. That no matter where you go in life, rule number one, make sure that you ask yourself one question. Is Allah pleased with me or not? My mom used to have the best guilt trip ever. As I was going out with friends and she would say, where are you going? Sometimes, you know, they ask questions that they don't want to know the answers to really. But where are you going? And I would try to explain, oh, we're going to go here. And she didn't understand everything. We're going to go, like, do this or do that. Laser tag. Or we're going to go. There's, like, drone racing at night. We're going to go watch. It's at night. They're all, you know, whatever. She wouldn't understand. She's like, this is all dumb. Just go clean your room. She would try to, you know, she would try to be understanding. But at, at the end of it, she's like, this is a waste of time. She would just say one thing. She would say, just make sure wherever you go that there are angels there. That's it. Like, wherever you go, just ask yourself, are the angels that are designed, created, and programmed to worship Allah and only be in good places. Are they there or are they not? Because if they're not there, she's like, you don't want to be in that state. And she would get really a little bit too strong. You know, someone can get too strong. We call OTT, over the top. Because she would just say, she'd, like, she'd be like, look, go where the angels are. I'm like, hadr, mama, hadr. She said, because if you die, mind you, I'm like, 19 when she's saying this and it's not of course it's not unreasonable right it's a, it's a good thought to have she's like if you die she's like there's two things i don't want to have to do she's like number one is i don't want to have to live the rest of my life knowing that my son died in a place of shaitan right like the club or something like that and then she also said i don't want you to embarrass me to come pick up your body in a haram place even after you die you embarrass me right so I said, subhanAllah. And can I, can I, I know it's funny. My mom is coming in a few weeks. I might have to have her do hard work, inshallah, to, to, so that she can just rip on me. Just a roast. We'll just make it a roast, right? We'll call it heartbreak, that session where she just sits and tears me up, right? But you know what's crazy? I used to like, I used to obviously joke about, you know, parents always say things like that, right? They try to make you feel it's a little bit. But do you guys remember the shooting in Christchurch? Do you guys remember the, the tragedy in Christchurch, New Zealand? SubhanAllah. May Allah Ta'ala accept them all as, as martyrs. There was a story that just rings in my ears, man. It just sticks to my heart that I'll never forget. So one of the things that people don't think about is that when a tragedy like this occurs, obviously there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of just even just what I like to call like structural pain. You know, there's emotional pain, like losing somebody. But then there's structural pain, like paying for the funeral. Like what do you do with their belongings? What do you decide to do with their bedroom? And many people can't deal with the structural pain, so they just leave everything. They say, you know what? I can't. I can't empty my son's bedroom. I can't empty my wife's bedroom. She passed. I, I have to leave it like it is. Her dresser is always going to be there because it's like structural pain. But then there's also structural bliss in that pain. One of the mothers said that when she went to go pick up the car of her son to go to Jumu'ah, she turned the car on and there was Quran playing on the radio. And can you imagine the relief she felt? Of course, her son is not coming back. So there's no relief that will bring him back. But can you imagine being a mother and processing that your son is gone and knowing that just like all of us, we're all going to die. We all have to decide, am I going to live my life going towards Allah's pleasure or going towards his displeasure, going towards heaven or going towards hell? And can you imagine the sleepless nights where as a mother or a father or whoever, you toss and turn knowing all the mistakes that your friends or family or kids made? And then can you imagine having to go pick up their car and worrying about what you'll find and turning the car on to drive it home and hearing the book of Allah being recited as your son went to Jummah? That's a dream. You know, my, one of my teachers used to say, when he used to describe these stories, he would say, we all have to go anyway, so you might as well go nicely. You all have to go anyway, so you might as well go good. Right? Like, if you got to go, 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 with, go in goodness to Allah. Right? So he's saying, number one, I'm leaving. Who? To where? To Allah. The scholar said, this means that he's going to go to a place where he can be in the pleasure of Allah at all times. He doesn't have to risk anything. Okay? Number two, and this is kind of tied to that, how do you achieve this pleasure of Allah? Is that you go to an environment and you go to people that you know will help aid you in succeeding in getting close to Allah. You don't always have to fight. A lot of us think that we're strong, okay? We're, we are strong, alhamdulillah. But everyone's strength is limited. You can only resist for so long. Everybody has their breaking point. 
I don't, I don't care how strong a person thinks they are. There is a certain weight that they cannot lift. There is a certain temptation they cannot withstand. All right? And for some of us, it's, it's, you know, a little bit funnier than others. When you're trying to diet, right, get in shape, you're like, I'm good. I'm good. And then you get home, no one's awake, and you see the box of cereal staring at you. Or the cake or the ice cream, and you're like, man, no one's here. After 10, calories don't count, right? And subhanAllah, it just becomes, you, you break. Some people, they stay really, really good with their gaze. And then when, they're, when no one's around, they start to look at things they shouldn't. Some people are really good, not backbiting, but they're around maybe a certain person that just triggers them or a certain group that just invites that conversation. And they're like, I shouldn't. But you know, and they just go off. <laughs> no, 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 I can't. Okay, let me just... Yeah, I can't leave you hanging. Like, no, 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 you leave us hanging, please, by all means, right? Let's all leave everybody hanging, inshallah. It'd be better to do that than to deal with it on the day of judgment, okay? So putting yourself in an environment of success is part of how you succeed. Putting yourself around people. Make sure that your friends are people that you admire. Make sure that the people that you spend time with are people that you admire. And I'm going to say something very difficult to understand here. Are you guys ready or not? You Okay. Is this going to be like, a, can, we, can we have a little bit of, is this like a little bit of lemon and lime juice or is it all marshmallows tonight? Sometimes being alone is better than being around bad people. Being alone. Now, look, my biggest fear for hard work is that you hear something, it resonates, and all of a sudden you become friendless. That's not the goal, right? But maybe, just maybe, if you've been teetering on the fence about whether or not I make good decisions, and I have to make a call, like it's make or break right now. This is my breaking point, this is my line. And I'm not saying that you have to proclaim, you know, I'm free from you, heathens, leave me, right? That's not what we're asking. What the Quran is asking is that you develop this God consciousness inside of you to make the right decision. And if you realize that there are certain moments and certain categories, like genres of your life, that are very difficult for you to maintain, then sometimes choosing to be alone is better than choosing to be with people. Generally, company is better than being alone. Generally. But it's only if the company is better for you than if you're by yourself. Right? We ask Allah to give us good company and make us good company. A lot of us demand good company, but we're not good company. Be good company and suddenly you'll find people around you are also good company. Right? It starts to reciprocate. The next state they say, How, where is he going? The pleasure of Allah. He's going to go to an environment that accepts him, that supports him, that inspires him. He's also going to go back to his purpose. You know, in life, all of the tests and distractions that come your way, that shaitan puts in front of you, that shaitan, you know, hits you with, one of the, one of the greatest tests that is, is so difficult to identify, subhanAllah, is the test of trying to do too much in your spiritual life. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. Professional aspirations, personal aspirations, trying to hold on to your religion at some point, trying to stay in shape, trying to be this, trying to socially hang out with everybody, climb the ladder, update your LinkedIn, tell Kelly good job, right? Like all these things. And then we forget how to stay in touch with Allah. And so he says literally, I'm going to go back to my purpose. I'm going to go back to my purpose. I remember feeling this way. I remember feeling like my wires were all crossed, completely hazy, just out of touch. And spiritually, my prayers felt dead. I remember this feeling. And I asked my teacher, at the time I wasn't studying too frequently, but he was someone, Sheikh, that I really looked up to. He would give khutbah at my masjid once in a while. After Jum'ah, I asked him, I said, Sheikh, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, I don't feel like anything's working. Like nothing. You know, people tell me, make dua, I make dua, I don't feel it. Prayer, I don't feel it. I'm not feeling it. He said, you need to eliminate everything. Clear everything off the table. Eliminate everything. And decide what you want to put on your plate. You know, if, if you have a beautiful dinner, but you put too much on there, you'll be like my son Musa. You'll freak out when things start to touch each other. All right? He doesn't like it when his food touches. He's like, No. So you got to put as much on your plate as you can handle that makes you comfortable, that allows you to succeed. Remember your purpose. Don't forget your purpose. And don't confuse your purpose. Your purpose, ultimately, is not to achieve professional success or social success. 
That's not your purpose. Those are great aspirations to have, but only built on a foundation of spiritual success. That's it. You can become the most successful professional in your field, but you can be very lonely. You can become the most popular person in your crew, but you can feel unfulfilled. Many people can sit with friends and feel totally out of it. But Allah is the one that if your relationship with him is good, you could be laid off or hired. You could be left out of the hangout or you could be planning the hangout yourself. But if you're good with God, your heart will feel a contentment that is indescribable. Better than the best gulab jamun you've ever had. Okay? And then subhanAllah, the last place that he's going to go. The last place that he said he's going to is he's going to go to a place where he can trust in Allah. He's going to go to a place that allows him to fulfill his tawakkul. That doesn't push him. Right? Everybody has to know what their own breaking point. He just had the most incredible miracle of maybe, who knows, of his time for sure. How many thousands of years. He literally was catapulted into a pit of fire, came out, walked out, untouched. Nothing burned off of him, not even a hair. But can you imagine, subhanAllah, even prophets. And one thing about prophets that I'll share with you that's very interesting is that prophets generally were very, very lonely people. They didn't have a lot of people with them. The, the Sahaba of the Prophet Muhammad was kind of a unique distinction. Generally, the prophets that came before the Prophet Muhammad they didn't have a ton of people with them. And what happens is in your environment, if you surround yourself too much and you rely upon yourself too much to handle everything, eventually your trust can begin to wane and fade and even your trust in Allah can begin to wane and fade. I was reading one of these productivity books and they said that one of the best things you can do is in the morning when you wake up, is to do the things that you can achieve very quickly. So they were like, the first thing you should do when you wake up is what? Pray, okay, they weren't Muslim, but okay, pray Fajr. <laughs> Inshallah, right? Work out. That's, that's hard, by the way. I don't know, but I don't know how you, you must be really, mashallah, successful. First thing you do, wait. No, what, they say the first thing you do when you wake up, they say, make your bed. They say, make your bed. Why? Too many of us, by the way, were like, huh? Yeah. I know exactly how many people in this room are going back to unmade beds tonight. Right? You know why? They say it's like one of those tasks that's so annoying that everyone just wants to ignore. It's just really, really, it's like, I just got out of it. And then you start playing like, like you think you're like Rene Descartes. You're like, well, if I'm going to go back to bed anyways, why? Why does it matter? Right? Why does anything matter? I'm like, relax, Kant. Right? Nietzsche. Like, you're like, aren't we all going to die? Why do I need a made bed? Relax. They say that when a person is able to accomplish these small tasks, it allows them to accumulate the wins, early wins. You'll feel productive. You know, maybe some days by 10 a.m. you're like, what have I even done all day? But on the days where like you make your bed, straighten up your room a little bit, clean your sink, your bathroom, right? Everything takes 60 seconds, but you do all three or four of it right when you wake up. Before you know it, it's like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and you're like, man, I've already accomplished half of my chores. And subhanAllah, why is that the case that it's so important? Because these are easy things. And spiritually, it's the same way. What's the first thing that we do when we wake up? We make dua to Allah. We thank Allah. What do we do after that? We go and we make dua. We brush our teeth. We make wudu. We pray. Easy wins. Small wins. Why is Fajr not even four rakah? One of the scholars wrote this. Why, why is Fajr prayer only two? Why is it not four? Because it's hard enough at two, ain't it? Can you imagine if Fajr was four? Can you imagine if Fajr was eight? Ironically, right? It's not. It's the shortest, but it is one of the most blessed prayers in the day. But it is the shortest. Why? Imam al-Ghazali wrote this because Allah wanted it to be easy. Allah Ta'ala wanted it to be easy upon us. So accrue these easy wins. Go to a place where you can establish your purpose, where you can refresh your trust in Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. Go to a place. Talk to people. Remind yourself about all the times that Allah Ta'ala helped you. Remind yourself of this. Right? I know it sounds like a, like a simple exercise, but wallahi, these little things, even 10 minutes a day, are things that can help change your life. Then he says, Rabbi habli min salihin Oh Allah, gift me, gift, right? Hiba, hab means to give me hiba. Hiba means a gift. And this is the verb that Allah in the Quran uses, by the way, 
for children. Allah Ta'ala doesn't use other verbs, right? Allow me to birth a child, allow me to have a child. Okay, whoever's trying to access the Apple TV, we get it. Okay, you're cool. We'll watch it after, okay? Inshallah, whatever video you have. Oh Allah, grant me the gift of a child. But he doesn't just say, give me a child. He says, oh Allah, give me a child that's righteous. Give me a child that is pious. But it's interesting here because subhanAllah, there's a couple things. We talked about this last week. The piousness of the child is secondary. Ibrahim is asking Allah to give him a child. And it's mentioned here, we talked about the loneliness. It's mentioned here because why? Because Ibrahim feels like he has nobody. And he wants his son to keep him company. And I'm not going to get emotional again, but last week we all kind of felt that. That you, for your entire childhood, you like aspire to like leave the nest. You can't wait. But you never think as you're leaving, right, that maybe I was their company. Maybe I was their companion, their friendship, their warmth. Then your parents call when you're older and you're like, I'm busy, right? But think of Ibrahim. Okay, we're just going to stop. Khalas, we'll give up. Think of Ibrahim Aisalam. Ibrahim Aisalam was just asking Allah, give me company in the form of a child. And he asks, he says, Mina salihin, the righteous. And Allah Ta'ala says, Fabasharnahu bi ghulamin halim. So we gave him a boy, a young son, but he described him with one characteristic. He described him with the characteristic of hilm. Now he asked for what? What kind of child did he ask for? A righteous child. Someone say smart? No, you didn't say smart. Righteous. Righteous child. Oh Allah, give me a pious child. Good character. Faithful. And Allah didn't respond by saying, oh, we gave him a righteous child. Allah said, so we gave him a child and that child had what? Hilm. Hilm in Arabic is hard to define, but we're going to give it a few characteristics. Number one is patient. And you see this in the story. I'm not trying to spoil it. You see it in the story. A patient child is truly, a patient person, forget child, a patient person is truly a gift to everyone around them. An impatient person is like a punishment to everybody around them. May Allah protect us. A person who's able to exhibit patience in moments of difficulty, it's almost like witnessing divine power. Like when you see someone who's able to keep it together in a moment where you're like, how are you able to remain this patient? It's like witnessing a gift from Allah literally in front of you. And the person usually is deriving this patience from Allah. Their trust in Allah, their remembrance of Him, their gratitude, right? Imam Ghazali actually says something very interesting. Imam Ghazali says that your life, everyone's life, is in between two states. You're either being patient or you're being grateful. There's no other state of existence. You're either being grateful to Allah for whatever he's given to you, or you're being tested, so you have to be patient. So patience is one of those superpowers. May Allah Ta'ala give it to us. That we're able to maintain ourselves. And there's different levels of patience, right? There's the patience where everyone can tell that you're being patient, and that's not very good. Where you have to remind people, I'm being very patient with you right now. Right? That's not very patient, right? You might, on paper, when they read back the transcripts 100 years from now, they're like, he was patient. But in that moment, everyone's like, this person's so impatient. Right? So having to, having to articulate your patience is not really true patience. The best kind of patience is the patience of Yaqub We just read his story a few weeks ago. When his son was taken from him, he was being tested with one of the greatest tests. I mean, look at this. And he says, what? فَصَبْرٌ jamil. Oh Allah, I'm going to bear patiently. But I'm not just going to be patient. Because I don't want to be patient and complain. I want to be patient and I want this patience to be so beautiful. The scholars say beautiful patience is that you're so patient nobody knows that you're struggling. Doesn't mean that you're hiding it from everybody. You can have your crew. You can complain to Allah and you got a few of your good friends. Your family, your friends, those that can help you. But by God Almighty, we need to relax on letting everyone know how tough life is. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. And I'll tell you why it doesn't help. There's two reasons. Again, this is going to be a little bit lemon-lime tonight, okay? It doesn't help to tell everyone how tough life is for two reasons. Number one is that not everyone can help you. You know, some of the most frustrated people in life are the ones who come to me and the first thing they say is, I've talked to so many sheikhs about this. I'm like, I don't feel special anymore. <laughs> right? They're like, I've been to Sheikh Yasser, Sheikh Omar, Sheikh... I'm like, okay, you don't need me anymore. I mean, like, it's fine. 
but everyone's looking for like a secret answer. And they're like, and they're all just telling me the same thing. And I'm like, be patient. They're like, how do you know? The reality is that if I'm seeking to solve my struggle by literally just being a diary to every person, I'm going to walk away disappointed. Allah Ta'ala taught us by the Prophet that when it comes to trials and tests in life, number one, you complain to Allah. And number two, who else did the Prophet complain to? His wife Khadija, his family, his daughter Fatima, his wife Aisha, his friend Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, his close friends Omar, Uthman, Ali, radiallahu anhum. He complained to the people that were close to him. He let them know how he was feeling. So he could vent to them and then they could also help him. They could give him good words, inspiration, motivation, maybe even feedback. But you rarely have a situation where the Prophet gathered on the member at Jumu'ah and said, let me tell you guys how bad my Friday's been. He never did this. But now, complaining is like a currency. It's almost like the more you complain, the more real you are. But Allah Ta'ala, He tells us that part of being patient is that you display this patience very, very selectively, very patiently, right? I know that that's kind of ironic. Number one, Halim is patient. Number two is that you have this forbearance. Forbearance is like patience, but it's like running a marathon of patience. So everyone can be patient for one day. Everyone can be patient, you know, for a couple minutes. But can you be patient with a person for like a few days, a few weeks? Can you bear patiently with something for a long time? That's what Hilm is. And I wonder, have you guys ever had Halim before? Halim, the desi food? All right. It's a slow cooked food. You see where I'm going? All right. And the more, the longer it cooks, the better it tastes, right? Just realize that. The longer you have to be patient, the better it is for you. You're developing a muscle, right? You're developing something. Don't rush the process because you're missing out on the, on the reward. And the third thing that Hilm has is that this person in the moment has, a, has the ability to trust that there is going to be resolution, right? They don't know where it's going to come from. Ibrahim is saying, oh Allah, you know, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere. And Allah Ta'ala saves him. Ibrahim says, oh Allah, grant me a child. Give me a child, please. Allah Ta'ala gives it. From where, right? Later in the story, you're going to see why his son, Ismail, is very halim. Because he doesn't know where the solution comes from. But he has this. He has this moment. He's able to handle the moment. Allah Ta'ala says, so we gave him a forbearant son who else was forbearant in this story with his huh uh, Hajar yes but who else Ibrahim his parents do you think Ibrahim was pretty good at being patient with his dad do you think he dealt with things do you think he had to trust in Allah do you think he knew how Allah was going to save him from the fire Ibrahim was patient Hajar his wife who he had Ismail with she was also patient she was incredible. Ibrahim takes his family, right? And he leaves them. Brand new son. After Allah Ta'ala gave him Ismail. He takes his wife Hajar and Ismail. And he goes to what's described in the Quran. Allah Ta'ala says, it's a place that has nothing. It's like Denton. <laughs> it is barren. There's nothing there. Right? Not even a Bucky's, right? <laughs> and he has to leave his family there. For those who aren't from Dallas, Denton is like, you know, where the Dallas Bedouins are, right? Okay? And if you're from there, welcome. Right? Welcome. We welcome you. Okay? He leaves his family in Mecca. Mecca, at this point, does not have anything. You know, now we're imagining Mecca as being this metropolitan, booming city. No, there's nothing there. Allah Ta'ala says it's a valley in which there's no vegetation. Not even weeds are growing out of the soil, out of the sand, the dirt. And he leaves his family there. And he begins to walk. Allah commands him that you have to leave your family. He starts to walk away. I want you guys to imagine this. He's walking away from his wife and their newborn son in a place that has no water, no vegetation, no shelter. And subhanAllah... His wife calls out to him, Hajar, she says out to him, she goes, why are you leaving us? Where are you going? And he doesn't respond. And in the hadith that she's saying this, the commentators say 
that he didn't respond out of pain. He couldn't answer. Because if you were going to answer, it would be way too painful. I'm leaving you because Allah has commanded me to leave and this is a test for us. She calls out again, where are you going? Where are you going? The baby's crying. Dad is walking away. He's a prophet. He has to go. Then listen to her next word. She goes, Is it Allah that told you to do this? He stops and he says, yes. She goes, then he will never leave us hanging. Go. We're good. Even in Denton, we are good. And he leaves. Now this is the part of the hadith that is heartbreaking. Is that he gets over the hill, right? Because Mecca has hills. To the point where his family can't see him and he can't see them. And then he stops and he turns around with tears in his eyes and he cries to Allah. Oh Allah, I've left my family here in a place that has nothing. Why? So that maybe they will establish prayer and they will make this a place of remembrance of your house, your sacred house. Oh Allah, allow them to be here and allow them to be grateful as a result of that. SubhanAllah. And then he goes. Fast forward, right? And we all know the story of Hajar and Zamzam. Maybe we don't, but we'll talk about it at some point, inshaAllah. Allah Ta'ala provides for them. Well, let me just say it now. So Ismail is there. Hajar is there. Ibrahim is gone. And the baby's crying. There's nothing. She has no food either. She's not producing any milk. He's not able to nurse. And so what does she start to do? Well, what anybody does. When they don't know what to do, they just get up and start doing stuff. Start walking back and forth. What do you do? So she's, she, she has her baby who's crying and she's running, running, running up to these hills. And as she's ascending the hill, she looks out to see if there's any water in the distance. As if like the last time something magically is going to appear. She comes back to the other side and the other side. And she does this how many times? Seven times. This is called Safa and Marwa. If you've ever done Umrah or Hajj, then you've done this. She goes back and forth until finally at the last time the narration says that an angel comes down, Angel Jibril came and with the tip, one narration says of his wing and the other says with his foot, a tip of his heel. He pierces the earth and Zemzem starts to gush forth. And it starts to gush forth so profusely that she starts to build a little, like a, a pond, like some walls around it so that it puddles and then she starts saying Zemzem, which means stop, stop. And later the Prophet Muhammad was saying a hadith that may Allah's mercy be upon Hajar, our mother Hajar. Had she not said stop, stop and built this wall, she said the entire region would have been like a lake. It would have been flooded. Like that's how much water was there. You know why I love this story? There's a lot of reasons. I love this story because one of the phrases we use in English to describe something that's impossible is we say that's like finding water in a desert. Apparently we don't use this in English or you don't know English, right? We say like finding a needle in a haystack. We say, man, that's like finding water in a desert. What led to this moment of finding water in a desert? Complete and total desperation. Complete and total desperation. If you find that your du'as are not connecting with Allah, you need to ask yourself one question. How desperate am I? If I'm not desperate and I'm asking Allah, chances are my du'as are not, they're not leaving my hands. They're staying right here. But if I am desperately asking Allah, Ibrahim begged Allah as he was leaving. Hajar, of course, begging Allah in her heart as she's running up and down for something, some nourishment to give her some comfort. And Allah Ta'ala provides, even in the most unlikely of places. Never limit Allah. Never say that I can't make du'a for this because it's not possible. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, right? The reality is that Allah can make the impossible possible by His will. All of the blocks in our mind, all the parameters that we have set up, they're all man-made. They're all human-made. Allah Ta'ala can change things very easily, very quickly. 
And I see some of the older people in the crowd nodding because you have absolutely experienced this. There's no reason to explain this. There's no reason that this would have happened. But Allah Ta'ala opened a door for you. And you all have these inspiring stories probably in your life. You got a job you shouldn't have got. Got into a school that you didn't have enough credits for. And got married to a person. And you're you, you know? <laughs> your menu is cereal and ramen. But here you are, three years in, mashallah, mubarak, right? Okay? Like, there's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, there are people with more serious stories. You know, you were told, you were told that you were never going to have children. And now you have how many? You were told that your child is going to be this. And you carried on with it, subhanAllah, and it's healthy. Like, I have so many stories in that office that I hear every week of people that say what? Everything else said no, but guess what? Allah said yes. And I don't want to do it, but I have to. God did. Okay, so. <laughs> and that's true. That's the one true statement DJ Khaled has ever said. Is God did, right? And if Allah Ta'ala wants something to happen, يَفْعَلُ ma yasha. Allah will wish whatever, whatever Allah wants to happen will happen. And no one can stop it. Okay? And the next story is incredible proof of this. فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ مَعْهُ قَالَ يَا إِنِّي أَرَى فِي الْمَنَامِ أَنِّي أَذْبَحُكَ فَانْظُرْ مَاذَا تَرَى قَالَ يَا أَبَتِي Who else said يَا أَبَتِي to his father, subhanAllah. Your kids are nothing but a mirror of you. Like, look at this. Ajeeb. إِفْعَلْ مَا تُؤْمَرْ سَتَجِنُونِي إِنْشَاءَ اللَّهِ مِنَ الصَّابِرِينَ This is the son he was begging Allah for. This is the son he was begging Allah for. Allah gave him a child. And then Allah describes it. He has to leave his child. He's not sure if he's ever going to see his child again. Allah gives them water. Allah gives them, because of that water, who came to Mecca after that? The tribe of Jurhum. This tribe comes. And they're known as like the most like brutal, macho tribe. And you know what they do? You have Hajar and you have a baby that are sitting there with this well of water and you have this tribe of Jurhum. You know what they say? They say, hey, whose water is that? Hajar says, it's mine. And they say, can we have some? She goes, depends. And they say, on what? She goes, you have to protect us. You have to, you know, keep us as one of your own. They said, deal. Allah gave her protection and society and civilization way more than she asked for. Her dua kept you know, multiplying over and over and over again. So her son grows up amongst these men, right? In the absence of his father, because he was there with his other family, he came back, subhanAllah. And his son now, Allah describes him as what? Now he's at the point where he's like a young man. He can do work. I was playing soccer with Musa the other day and he juked me out of my shoes, right? And you will never be prouder as a parent than when your child outdoes you. There's only two people in life that want you to be better than them. Your, your parents and your teachers. A teacher never gets jealous of a student that, is, that becomes greater than them. And a parent begs Allah every night, make my child better than me. I know my own shortcomings. I know my flaws. Oh Allah, make my son or daughter better than me. Allow them to achieve more than me. That's the dua of a parent, right? And if you talk to many parents, that's what they say. They say, I wanted better for my children than I even wanted for myself. So now Allah Ta'ala has given Ibrahim this incredible gift of a child that's old enough to like have fun, right? And old enough to like do stuff together, to build stuff together. I mean, imagine their family project, man. SubhanAllah was building the Kaaba together. No, you and I would like build like an Ikea bed. Me and Musa build like a bookcase, high five each other, his soccer net in the backyard. Can you imagine? Dad, let's build the Kaaba together. You know, like what a legacy, subhanAllah. But in this moment, Ibrahim is having a very troubling dream at night, every night. Every night in his dream, he's being told by a voice in his dream. And the dreams of prophets are considered wahi, revelation. He's being told that you have to sacrifice your son. 
And the, the tafsir says he has this dream over and over and over and over again. Not that he's ignoring it, but he's processing it. Finally, he has this dream enough times that this is the conversation that happens. He says, Ya Bunay. Which again, is like the most beloving way of saying my son. He doesn't go to him and say, hey, come here. It's like he sits him down. And I want to frame this properly for everybody. Revelation for a prophet is not a choice. So if the prophet gets revelation that he has to do something, there is no conversation that will change what has to happen. You understand? If he's told he has to do something, it has to happen. So there is no conversation that's even necessary, quite frankly. This is not a, a, a consultation. This is a, I'm informing you of what has to happen. So he says, Ya Bunaya, which automatically changes the tone. Habibi, come here. Sit next to me. Inni araf al-manam. I've been experiencing this dream. I saw it in my dream. Inni adbahuka. That I have to sacrifice you. And then he asked this question. Fandur madha tara. Tell me what you think. Remember, there is no choice. There is no room for changing the plan. Why does Ibrahim ask his son what he thinks? Why? Because what, what does a loving person, a father in this scenario, want more than the person they love in the middle of the greatest test that they'll ever experience to know what? Remember that I love you. Like this is not me doing this. This is not a test that I am enjoying. Tell me what you think. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about it. I want to hear your thoughts because I need you to know as my son that I value what you think, even if we have to go through with it. And subhanAllah, the most amazing response just like he said, Ya Bunay. He didn't say, Oh, Dad. He said, My dear father. Dad, do what you got to do. Do what you've been commanded. This is what Allah gave him. What do we say Hilm was? Hilm was being patient. Hilm was trusting your patience so much that you didn't know where the resolution was going to come from. He doesn't say, Dad, I think that it's going to be okay. Or Dad, you're a prophet. God would never... He doesn't try to like logic through anything. Heck, if it were you and me, You'd be like, what's that? Is that the Kaaba? Run away, right? Is that another Zamzam? And then just leave. Because, you're, because if it were you or me, we're like, no, no, no. Ismail, his father's son, says, Dad, do what you got to do. And Satajiruni is future tense. He's like, I hope that you will find me. He's confident. I hope that you will find me able to bear patiently with this. Insha'Allah, min as-sabirin. فَلَمَّا أَسْلَمَ وَتَلَّهُ لِلْجَبِينَ Then, the story says that they went up to the mountain where sacrifices were made. Ismail got onto the ground where the rock was usually placed, where they would place the animal on. And the Quran says, Ibrahim, he took his forehead and he put it on the rock. Right? Because the sacrifice happens at the jugular. And one narration even says that he looked at his father and he said, Turn my face down, turn my face away so you don't look at me in the eyes. I don't want you to get weak. Do what you have to do. 
وناديناه ان يا ابراهيم ابن كثير says that ابراهيم took the blade and placed it upon the neck of his son and he says that he even very slightly moved it and these blades were sharp they were super sharp but ibn kathir says that something very interesting happened the blade didn't cut there was no blood he said he lifted it and there wasn't even a mark i know some people here are like i got a degree in physics that doesn't make sense right do we forget the whole fire thing that happened <laughs> like Allah created physics. He made physics. He controls this. Ibn Kathir explains. He says, why was it that Ibrahim went through the process? Because he had to prove that he was going to go through with it. That was his test. And then at that moment, when he put the knife there, and it moved one centimeter, and it didn't cut, and ya Ibrahim, a voice called out, O Ibrahim, he said, you have fulfilled, you've been true with the dream that you had. And this is how we reward those people who do good. This has been a test that has given you clarity and has showed you the clearness of this moment. I wanted to leave with this one trait. You know, this whole series is called Becoming a Friend of Allah. So there's so many different things that we can talk about. How did Ibrahim and Ismail in this moment display their friendship to Allah? So many things. We can talk about the fact, Hilm, friends of Allah are patient people. Friends of Allah are able to withstand with no clear understanding of how they're going to get out of it. Right? And in this moment, Allah Ta'ala says, وَفَدَيْنَاهُ بِذِبْحٍ عَظِيمٍ Allah Ta'ala sent down an animal as a replacement, a fat goat, right? And it's interesting because in the tafsir, I'll share with you one thing. The tafsir says that this goat, Ibn Abbas, he narrated this. He said that the goat was waiting. This was not any goat, by the way. This wasn't like a Apna Bazaar, you know, special, Right? Green Vine doesn't sell this one. This goat, Ibn Abbas said, was grazing in paradise. Was waiting for this moment. This was the reason this animal was created. Was grazing in paradise. And when did Allah send this goat down? Allah did not send it down when he said, Allah did not, Ibrahim wakes up from his dream. Maybe he's scared. Allah sends the goat down. Ibrahim's like, oh God, thank goodness. No. The goat was waiting for what? Was waiting for Ibrahim to pass the test. Ismail to pass the test. The reward, Allah Ta'ala says what? He says, The reward that they got, it was only waiting for them when they passed. See, many of us want the reward before we pass. We need to know that we're going to get the reward in order for us to take the test. Let me take the test, but hold on. Before I take the test, am I going to get what I want? That's not how tests work with Allah. Why? Because the purpose of tests, tests are supposed to be clarifying. They're supposed to make you see who you really are. And how would Ibrahim have seen who he really was if the goat came down any moment before the moment where he tried to cut the neck? You have to carry it through. You have to fulfill whatever it is that you're in. That moment, that moment that you're struggling with, you have to cross that line from certainty to faith. You're not always going to be able to know. You're going to have to get uncomfortable. But I promise you, and not because it's me, who am I? I'm nobody. I promise you because the Quran tells us this, and the Prophet tells us this, that the moment that you lift your foot and you place it from the ground of certainty to the ground of the unknown. But with Iman, Allah will give you rewards that you could have never imagined. Allah Ta'ala says, Whoever places their trust in Allah, they will find that Allah will be enough for them in every minute, in every moment. 
Ibrahim, his friendship with Allah, in part, was defined by the fact that in the toughest moments, he never let his trust waver from Allah. He never fell short. The most beautiful moment you're going to have in your life is when you actually prove the statement, Oh Allah, I trust you. The greatest pain you're going to have is when you say, I trust Allah, but everything we do and every action we make disproves that statement. Right? Entering into the trust of Allah is not easy, but it's the sweetest state that we can enter. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us those who trust Him. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make our tests clarifying for us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to pass our tests and to allow us to be people that live between thankfulness and patience. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to be surrounded by people that encourage us towards Him. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to always be going to places where we are encouraged towards Him, that we are getting closer to Him. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us amongst those people that are encouraging towards Allah. We ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive us of our sins, to take the clouds of mistakes off of our heart so that we can see clearly. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us the characteristic of hilm, the ability to trust, to be patient, and to not give up hope. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to become his friend. And that as a result of this friendship, we have unshakable trust in him. Ameen, ameen, ya rabbil alameen. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. A uh, couple of announcements, everybody, inshallah. Uh, we have a really exciting week coming up, inshallah. Uh, obviously, we have our regular programming. So tomorrow night, we got 30 and up. And then we also have, inshallah, on Thursday, soul food for the college students. But we also have this Friday, a community barbecue, which everyone's invited to. Uh, it's for everybody. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter anything, what community you belong to, right? You are welcome to come here, inshallah, and have some food. Uh, on Friday at 6 p.m. After the barbecue, we are being blessed with uh, the presence of Sheikha Aisha Prime, who is from the DMV area. She's a wonderful, uh, uh, mashallah, Muslim scholar. She has studied in, in Yemen, in Egypt, and we're going to be having a conversation on the community of the beloved. And this is going to be a really, really amazing conversation, inshallah, a panel. That's going to be after the barbecue, bi'idnillah, uh, inshallah. And then Saturday morning, we have a special session of sisterly just with her. It's ladies only with Sheikh Aisha Prime, inshallah. You're going to see a flyer out for that, uh, inshallah ta'ala. Okay, so we got a full, full stack of events this week at Roots, inshallah. We hope that you guys benefit, make dua for us. And if you're not a sustainer already, visit rootsdfw.org slash sustain and help support the community, inshallah. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.